everyone assalamu alaikum welcome back to in the now the heaves podcast series where it's our honor to introduce you to incredible people that we believe have insights and helpful perspectives to understand and navigate through current international and national human political and social crises my name is iman azim okeli and i work as part of the editorial board here at the heave i will be your host for today Today we have with us Dr. Sahab Wader Sheikh who is a an assistant professor in the SDB program at Habib University and he holds a double bachelor's in economics and management from the University of London in association with the London School of Economics and Political Science having his curiosity piqued by books such as Freakonomics and mostly harmless economics he pursued a master's in economics from Lum mm-hmm. In 2011 he joined the Center for Economic Research in Pakistan to apply his academic knowledge into practical research working as a research associate on the Punjab Economic Opportunities program he gained invaluable experience with regard to data handling and field work occasionally he has also consulted for the Punjab Skills Development Fund and Department of International Development Dr. Sahab pursued his doctoral studies in economics at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where his research interests revolved around environmental health and labor economics. Mm-hmm. His dissertation focuses on the economics of natural disasters, exploring both the impact of disasters on health outcomes and the political economy of disaster relief. At Habib, he pursues an interdisciplinary research agenda, teaching courses that range from quantitative research methods, advanced quantitative research. environmental and natural resource economics and data analytics mm-hmm. then thank you so much for being here thank you for inviting me man today we're talking about the current flood situation in pakistan and its proliferation in the form of flash floods across the country yeah so let's start off by discussing how i think we hear the term flash floods more often these days and in your words how would you then describe flash floods and like how would you describe the recent flood situation in pakistan and with regard to terming them as flash floods like could right. the current floods be seen as flash floods right they could definitely this tragedy that has occurred uh, can be termed as flash floods for sure a uh, flash floods are basically they take place whenever there's a large amount of rain in a very short period of time uh, they could be due to various reasons it could be cloud burst it could be riverine flooding it could be inundation or something else uh, these particular ones uh, the amount of rain that fell in karachi or in sindh region was about 6 times more than anticipated in balochistan it was closer to 8 times more than what happens in a typical season august of 2022 is probably has been recorded as the heaviest rains in pakistan's history um, so clearly we were not anticipating these to be so bad but there were precursors right we've seen the floods of 2010 and we've seen sort of regular floods occurring in 2013 2016 so on and so forth and with climate change it's really not that surprising anymore that we're getting this huge variation in what we had anticipated the monsoon season might look like versus how um strong or unpredictable how quickly the amount of rain is now pouring right? and some of the things are sort of exacerbated because we have melting in our glaciers technically in the last 5 6 years even though we have this floods now 
Um, we've been sort of in the drought for a few years now. And there's this weird thing where um, once you have this drought and this extended heat, it sort of becomes like a magnet to draw higher precipitation. And those usually end up being flashbacks. Right. So when we talk about the consequences of flash floods on emotional well-being and the connecting implications of them in terms of, you know, the 2010 flash floods and then the 2013 flash floods. So, you know, are there any lessons learned from those disasters that our country went through? And so are there and are there any situations that are a build up to those floods and how they could have been handled differently and their effects were would have not been as worse as we're seeing? So I think we should have definitely learned from the 2010 flash floods. I think the um, government agency, which is the National Disaster Management Agency, we also have provincial agencies to sort of deal with these disasters. But my own work in 2013, and more recently what we've seen in the 2022 floods, seems to suggest that we aren't as prepared as we should have been. Um, it is true that these floods were a bit more than what we had anticipated, but the preliminary work that should have been done in the summer before the monsoon season wasn't completely done. There's a number of factors for those uh, not being as effective as the preparation should have been. We just are coming out of COVID, right? We had a political regime change, um, even though it was um smooth in a sense we didn't really have too much violence luckily but it did disrupt um a lot of the bureaucratic functioning we're also in not the best economic time in pakistan we're struggling so all of these factors have sort of made managing the flood much more challenging so uh, as we speak about 33 million people one in seven Pakistanis has been affected most severely in Sindh and Balochistan, but also in some areas in the north, right? Um, lessons learned. Well, one thing that we sort of know is with respect to mental well-being, mental health, um, there has been work done in the past where once a natural disaster occurs, and any type of natural disaster, right? Having counseling and psychological services available within the first three to six months can really prevent the long-term impacts of these sort of disasters on our mental health from dragging on over the years. Because what I think some people might not realize is once you face a shock of this magnitude, the long-term consequences can be traced 20, 30 years down the line. There's a really nice paper by Xiang and others. Xiang and Gina is, I think, his co-author, where they look at the lessons learned from 16,000 cyclones globally. And they sort of cite that in one of the countries in Eastern Europe, um, they have been losing about 8% of their GDP annually. And this is happening 20 years after the major cyclone hit, right? We ourselves as Pakistanis should be completely familiar with the worst cyclone in recorded history, which was Bola. And it hit a couple of months before the 1971 partition in 
Bangladesh, right? Um, again, these are things that we at Habib University are trying to discuss both in courses such as environmental economics, but also in our courses such as the liberal core FAMSA course, right? So we talk about how do disasters have mental health consequences, but also much larger role within history, right? Um, lessons learned. Um, we definitely have learned some lessons. Uh, I would say that the loss of life that could have happened had we been completely unprepared would have been far more substantial than what happened. We lost about 1,500 people so far. Um, that's a tragedy, but this could have gotten so much worse, right? There was decent coordination at the national level. They did try to work with relief providers. The army also came in and stepped in big time. Um, locals who had boats, they tried to help out. Uh, a lot of international aid was provided, but clearly rather than being reactive and trying to treat after the fact, we should be sort of prepared in advance, almost like being preventative medication is much cheaper than trying to cure a disease after the problem, right? In Pakistan, even though we're not the largest contributors in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, we are amongst the most vulnerable countries, right? So in that sense, we should be more prepared. It's all good and well expecting um, the more developed countries who sort of contributed more to sort of try and help us. But at the end of the day, um, we can't simply sit back and not do anything, right? We need to prepare. And if you look at our own culture, it's a consumption-based culture. So it's not like we are taking strong steps to mitigate future possibilities of floods. Um, all I can say is at least um, at the larger level, we are trying, we're trying to educate our students. I think at the national level, the government is trying to spread awareness. It's not where we need to be, but we're moving in the right direction. Almost no country on the planet could have deal, dealt perfectly with the scale of these threats, but perhaps we could have moved faster, evacuated people earlier, gave alerts. Maybe we could have saved some lives, right? Yeah, so you're saying that all of these, uh, this current outbreak of the disaster, it's like sort of like related to all the previous yeah. um, climate change and other sort of natural disasters, right? And um, even the Balaport earthquake yeah. is related to this. So then, you know, when we come to the philanthropy of disasters related to any climate change um, events, including floods and how political objectives and environmental justice is related. Right. And you know how, you know, we're in firefighting mode in that regard. So. so, so just to follow up from what, before I answer this question, um, the way I'm going to answer it, there's not going to be a perfect response to what is the method to move forward but more of a discussion on what can happen or what should happen, right? And what we cannot do. Um, there's always going to be trade-off, right? So you're thinking in terms of, I think your question was, what the philanthropy or the relief effort should look like and how this relates to previous plans. Politically speaking, uh, so I've written two chapters of my dissertation on this. Um, in the United States, 
the equivalent of the National Disaster Management Agency of Pakistan is FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Authority, right? What we've found by going over um, a very large amount of FEMA's data is that while disasters tend to occur in different places, relief aid is not always proportional to the disaster damages. Okay. So at times, it can matter whether your political constituency has a representative who sits on the oversight committee of the NDMA or FEMA, and they can better sort of facilitate their constituents rather than direct funds towards where the damages were the most significant. Um, we've seen this in the past as well, right? There's, we, we like to think that the bureaucracy operates perfectly, but there's always going to be different groups with their own interests, right? And unfortunately, a political setup, the way it's sort of framed um, in most countries, does tend to take advantage of national disasters to either score political points or to secure future seats. Um, so that can sort of result in non-optimum allocations, right? Yeah, I'll stop there. So we were talking about how, you know, natural disasters are like, um, yeah, basically political agendas and everything that play into this. So like, you know, I wanted to sort of steer this into the direction of how, you know, when we see a disaster is a natural disaster, but is that really so? Like, can we like, actually you know see it as a man-made disaster or a human yeah i disaster. find it quite interesting a lot of people sort of feel that humans and nature are somehow disjoint uh, i think we are as much part of nature even though we try to always distance ourselves from it i think in the past this has been this conception that you know the world is just a set of resources for humans to exploit but with the more recent sort of emphasis on sustainability, we are reconsidering our relationship to the environment. Now, given that sort of what we're trying to teach here is environmental uh, resources and try to understand justice. environmental justice, right? We have to acknowledge that we're living in the age of the Anthropocene, where humans are now sort of impacting the environment in a way that it does not have the capacity to self-correct anymore, right? So in the past, while humans were impacting the environment, it was never at such large levels in such a short period of time. So humans have now basically flooded the environment. And what are we flooded with is pollution, heat and gases, right? It's because we are living in a time period where what we're taking from the natural environment is far more than it's it's sort of organic capacity to repair, to replenish. And that is sort of building up, it has been building up for the last couple of hundred years, right? Now we are at a point where we have sort of tipped the balance where the system has become unstable. So it's a turning point, right? They used to say that 400 million parts of carbon, uh, 400 million parts ppm, right? Parts per million of carbon would be this hard line that we're going to really try not to cross. 
but there are about 200 countries, independent countries on the planet. It's really hard to get them to sit together and agree to a protocol, to uh, environmental policy, to limit these emissions, right? The environment is a public good, particularly air. It's really hard for me to stop the air that I breathe from going over to someone else or some other place. So this is a public good that we all share, right? So if we are going to bring about change, it has to be through consensus at the international level. Right? Unfortunately, because of our slightly differing interests, each country has their own interests to protect, right? We haven't been able to do as much as we would have liked. Despite that, they have made really important strides. So China is making huge efforts to try and sort of reduce its pollution. The US has been sort of a mixed bag. They tend to sign up, but then usually pull out of these agreements. Uh, the European Union is trying, but these, it's really hard to hold countries to account because these are self-pledges. These aren't backed by sort of punishment or credible threats, right? And the interests are quite polar opposites. The countries that are expected to reduce pollution the most are not the ones who are the most vulnerable. So there's not a direct incentive built into the system, right? Because if I was being exposed to harm and I was the one producing the pollution, it would be very much in my own self-interest to try and self-correct the problem. But now we have different groups of people. Some are trying to sort of substitute pollution to other countries, right? So they ship their factories from developed countries to the less developing or the currently developing countries. So now the pollution is being emitted in those areas instead. So it's a mixed bag, right? So you're saying it's hard to reach a consensus, right? So then how do we, like, what can we do on the local level, in the national level, if a consensus is a very, like, far-reaching uh, concept that... So that has to be the goal, um, the international consensus. What we can do at the local level is, A, raise awareness, right? We can try to build a community which is more sustainable. Our own lives should reflect some version of sustainability whether it's um, trying to reduce our engagement with, let's say, fast fashion or the use of plastics, right? We can perhaps um, take small steps to sort of encourage one another and at least have certain commitments with our family members or friends or our um, workmates where we can agree at that level at least, okay, we are going to try our level best to reduce what we can. The next step is we have to be organized about this. We need to elect representatives who pitch at least a platform which includes some version of sustainability. Nobody is going to have the perfect answer, but we need to start rewarding those people who are sustainable and trying to at least disengage from those who are completely irresponsible and are not accepting any sort of responsibility, any stake in the global stakes of humanity, right? This idea that we can all sort of just leave 
Earth and go to Mars and establish a new civilization. Um, it might be somewhat practical, but it's only for like one or five percent of the population. Most of us, there is no planet B, it is Earth, and we need to fix what we have. Um, either we fix what we have or the planet is going to fix it for us. And that's sort of the direction we're heading in. It's almost as if we are all walking towards a collective suicide and the climate change and the impacts are such a large colossus and they're also slow, such slow moving, at least historically they have been, that it's hard to be shocked out of our complacency and react to it. But here at Habib, we're trying to teach, educate, and work on areas. So some of our research work is engaged in areas that are at least um, related to the environment. We talked about sustainability, right? And uh, when we talk about sustainability and displacement, right? We talked about so many people being displaced. So how do we ensure like the right to the city for these displaced people, right? And the notion of long-term sustainable aid. Right, so it's a very tricky question because it's really hard to argue that people who have lost basically everything should not be allowed to travel within a country where they are citizens, they're citizens of the country. But perhaps um, people who live in these urban centers feel, and they feel correctly, that their cities do not have the capacity to absorb all of the climate refugees or um, migrants who are leaving or forced to leave their houses because of what has happened with the climate, right? Their land is no longer fertile, it hasn't rained for a while, or these flash floods have come about, and now we have these internally displaced peoples. And they are trying to go towards those cities where they can hopefully try and find a job, salvage a career, make some something out of their lives. The opposing argument is for the people who are already living in these cities, right? They're worried about an increase in crime. They're worried about how do we house 33 million people, right? There is no city on the planet that can house 33 million people overnight. That's just not possible, right? As is, most of our cities are already struggling with capacity constraints, right? Uh, let's take the example of Karachi, whether it's sanitation, clean air, our roads, our education institutions, they can barely, barely meet the needs of the current residents. So, so where do we go from here? What's like a solution or a possible ethical way, uh, a socially just way of dealing with these people, right? First and foremost, we must realize that having an emotional reaction to the disaster and giving aid in the first month or so is not gonna work for a long-term sustainable solution, right? As we are right now in November, October, now we're gonna start moving towards December, the colder month, right? And then January, where most places in Pakistan are gonna get particularly cold. The first thing these people need is shelter from the cold. Next, we have standing water, right? The standing water is a huge problem because waterborne diseases are the leading killer, leading cause of death for infants under the age of five in Pakistan. 
about 100,000 people in, in Pakistan die every year because of waterborne diseases, diarrhea, typhoid, malaria, so on and so forth. Right? So they're going to need access to cheap medication and readily available medication. We can't possibly house everyone in Karachi. So we need to set up some sort of long-term shelter, almost like a refugee camp, the way we did when the Afghan refugees came. It has to be a commitment. That's not a three-month commitment. We have to think about an year-long commitment at the minimum, right? These people who have lost everything, including livestock, maybe they weren't able to go back. If they're not able to go back and plant for the upcoming season, they're not going to have any surplus for the whole year, which means they're going to need support through programs such as FISP, right? Or through the ESAS program that's run nationally now. And they're going to need that support for at least a year to get back on their feet. Most of these are hardworking, genuine people, but they've faced a disaster and they need some help. If we can't physically sort of um, host them here, we need to provide sufficient resources to make sure that the children are safe, the mothers are safe, the men are safe, they have shelter, they have jobs, so that they can start to at least have a semblance of normalcy, right? Right now, some of them are being housed at schools, which aren't really designed to house people, right? The facilities are very bare-bone. There's no easy solution to it. This is going to be a painful, painful experience for Pakistan. But this is where nations sort of have to come together internationally to support Pakistan and where the people of Pakistan have to come together to support one another to show what it really means to belong to a community, right? So whatever little you can do to support, whether in, in terms of your time, uh, whether you can say a prayer, if you can contribute financially, if you can raise awareness, right? Or even if you can just reduce the sort of negative stigma about refugees or um, migrants who are coming in because they faced a natural, disa natural disaster, we our prior, our stereotype shouldn't be that these people are going to cause us harm or make something worse. I think this is the most sort of uh, basic thing that we can do as humans is to ensure that we give them enough um, enough of a safety net so that they don't feel they're left out. A, they know that this disaster could have happened to you and me as well, right? And if we don't take care of them today, nobody's going to be able to take care of us tomorrow. I, I like that. Yeah. Yes. So we're talking about competence at all levels, right? And yeah. seeing this disaster as a very multifaceted, multidimensional source of poverty and tackling it in terms of, you know, long-term goals and how, you know, right now we're still in firefighting mode. Yes. But the adaptation and the survival and then the adaptation is going to take a longer time. So there is a ray of hope and there is like... Yes. You know, so there is a ray of hope for sure. The first great thing is we've managed to limit the loss of life. That's important. But the next step is we at least show that we have a sentiment. Uh, we have an emotional connection to these people. They are our brethren. So whatever we can do today to help them is going to be rewarded back to us multiple times, right? 
Um, so even if you have a selfish, selfish motive, that's completely fine. Your own security depends on their security. If they don't feel safe, we can't live together and expect ourselves to be. Right? The good thing about what can potentially happen. Um, if this had been riverine flooding from, so let's say, glacial melt or glacial lake outbursts in the Himalayas, there would have been alluvial soils brought down. That didn't quite happen, although some of the rivers did overflow. Maybe what we can expect is this gives a shock to the system. We realize that, look, this is no longer theoretical for Pakistan. A lot of the predictions that Pakistan will be facing climate change crisis in the, ninth, in the 40s or 50s, about 20 years from now, are occurring in 2022. So we need to start moving on an emergency footing, war footing, and start addressing as many of these things that we can address. Uh, we need to start reducing fossil fuel consumption, perhaps try to uh, make our energy mix more sustainable, right? So that in the future, and if possible, if we can invest in early warning systems, so that in the future, we can at least try and mitigate some of the risks involved, right? People living in urban areas are also not fully protected, but this should shock us that if we don't start moving towards uh, urban infrastructure design, which has sustainability as a key component, this will happen to us sooner or later, right? And we're not alone. So that's sort of like the silver bullet or the silver lining here. There are lessons that can be learned. Yes, definitely. So like ending up with the notion how floods are non-discriminatory. Um, right. Um, yeah, I think I sort of mentioned that just now. Um, floods really do not care whether we're rich or poor. They have very little interest in where we live. Sometimes geography can help um, alleviate some of the flooding. But in most cases, the way we are constructing our cities, which are basically, you can think of them as forests of cement and steel, we are actually exacerbating the problem, right? So the richer people or the more privileged people, if we feel we might be secure, all you have to do is look at phase seven in defense, uh, which is already facing a lot of the problems. Every time it rains a little in Karachi, a lot of those areas become inaccessible their basements or maybe their ground floors are badly impacted. So we need to think about this much more like a national and a global problem rather than thinking that, oh, this is only going to impact some of the most uh, vulnerable communities. Floods, rains, we are creating an urban heat effect here as well. Um, they're going to impact all of us. So the sooner we fix or try to address these issues, whether it's blood related, air pollution related, or any other form of pollution, we need to make sure that there's sort of some sort of balance between what we're taking out from the environment so that the environment, which has a natural capacity to sustain itself, is able to do so. Currently, some of our methods, perhaps, we can improve in terms of production efficiency or sustainability or just even in terms of social justice to make sure that we're not taking out too much, right? The same thing applies to our marine life. If you 
fish too heavily, the whole populations will collapse, right? And if we are sort of doing the same with our environment, the environmental structures will collapse. And those are sort of some of the results that we are seeing. Thank you so much, Dr. Sahar. Thank you, ma'am.